Verse 19. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. But at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, Lazarus, whose body was covered with sores, who longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. In addition, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now this is the famous parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now what's interesting is, the rich man's name is never revealed. Lazarus is the one who's revealed. And this is important for two reasons. We've mentioned this in different books of the First Testament, like uh, Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson, who failed to communicate Samson's purpose to him, so God intentionally left her name out of the Bible. Uh, Mr. So-and-so, who refused to redeem the land of Naomi in the book of Ruth. And so he failed to continue the name in the line of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, Ruth's father-in-law. So God refused to continue his name in his word of God. The man of God in um, 1 Kings chapter 13, who um, basically failed to obey God and go home like God told him to without eating. So God did not communicate his name in the Bible. This is a very common thing. The rich man who failed to live out the covenant blessings of the law to other people, loving your neighbor, God is refusing to continue his name. But the other thing he's doing is they lived in a culture where they would expect the rich man's name to be announced. They need to know his name because names are status and lineage, and we want to know who he belongs to. But the poor person is just one of many faces in the crowd. He has no great lineage or great status. Why does he need to be announced? So Christ does a total role reversal where the president of the United States walks in and the announcer says, yeah, that guy just came. And yet some homeless guy just kind of wanders in looking for bread and God says, behold, the great Matthew. Okay? And he announces. And the entire audience would be like, what? That's not how you do it. That's one of the reasons that God is doing this in this parable. And we're told that the rich man was incredibly rich. So rich that he dressed in purple fine linen. And now in the Greek, it actually says even his underwear was fine linen. And even his underwear was purple. You don't need, and now remember, purple clothing, purple cloth is like gold to us today. So this is like having gold underwear today. And you're like, you don't need gold underwear. Like nobody sees that, and it's not like always clean. What God is saying is this guy was just all about wealth, and he was all about pomp. And he just wanted you to know, like, I even have Gianni Versace underwear. Okay? You're like, who cares? Okay, who cares? But, and he feasted, not occasionally, but every day. But his gate was a poor man, Lazarus, whose body was covered in sores, and he longed to eat what fell from the table, the rich man. In this culture... The poor people were actually taken care of a little bit better than what we think. And the reason is that, remember in the ancient world, most people are the poor. And like, most, there, there is no middle class. You and I are like middle class. And some of us are like in the upper middle class and moving into the wealthy class. I don't know all your financial checkbooks, but, but most of us are middle class. There was no middle class in the ancient world. The 1% were incredibly wealthy and everybody else was just poor. And I gave you those numbers a few weeks ago on what there was the average salary of people in denarius. 
people couldn't afford to take care of their families. If your family broke their leg and they became crippled the rest of their life, if you're poor and you're barely surviving yourself and working in the lane, you can't take care of them. You don't have the resources for it. If they're mentally ill and they're trying to harm themselves all the time, you, you can't take care of that. I mean, some of us have had family members who've gotten dementia and have gotten very angry or they've gotten whatever, or some of them or have had sicknesses and you're like, I don't know how to handle this. I feel so overwhelmed by this mental illness or, or this physical ailment. And it's not that I don't love them. It's not that I don't want to take care of them. I just can't do it. I've got four kids or whatever. They're little ones, and I can't do this. Now, think about that in the ancient world. You've got six or seven kids, and you literally have to work every single day just to make an ends meet, and you're barely surviving. You're barely feeding them. And, then, and there is no such thing as psychology that has helped us understand that this is a mental illness, a da-da-da-da-da, or there's hospice, or any, and you had to do all yourself. They couldn't. And so a lot of times the poor, the, the, the poor would take their family members who had these problems and they would take them to the gate of some wealthy person and they would put it at their gate and just let them take care of them. And, and, and I know that sounds cruel and abandoning, but it's not because it's the best thing they could do. Because the wealthy would do it. The wealthy would take care of them. Because they are required by the law to give alms to the poor and take care of the poor. And, they, and this is their way of doing it. And it makes them look really good that they're taking care of all those people. In fact, the more people that are at their gates that they're taking care of, the better they look. And so it was not only a requirement of the law to take care of the poor, and so they're going to do it because they have to look good under the law, but it's also a social status stuff. Yes, you're like, in a perfect world, that's not the most ideal way to take care of your loved ones, but we don't live in a perfect world. And that being taken care of by your loved ones, if people have false motives, is still better than them not being taken care of. And if we really said, well, but they have to have good motives, then go to your doctors, all your doctors, and ask them what their true motives are for why they're a doctor. <laughs> Anybody that's ever helped you, ask them what was their true motives. You didn't reject the doctor's help when he was curing you of something because you were wondering whether he was truly doing it for himself and his own glory. The brain surgeon that was on you, you're like, wait a minute, I want to know what your real motives in helping me is. Do you just want another Pulitzer Prize or you really care about me? No, you want them to just do surgery, right? And that's how they thought, and that's how we think. And the other thing, too, is the rich people didn't actually do it. They sent their servants out to do it. Their servants would touch them. I, mean, I don't want to touch them. So their servants would go out there and take care of them. This is the way to operate it. The problem is this rich man is so selfish that he's not even doing that. He is so selfish, he can't even send his own servants. He's wearing Gianni Versace underwear, and he can't even bend himself down to send a servant out and to give him even just the scraps of his table. And so the point that God is making, or Jesus is making, is this man is selfish beyond selfish. Totally selfish. Even the dogs are more compassionate to Lazarus by licking his wounds. And we all know the healing properties of dog's tongue, not a cat, because cats are evil. <laughs> the, the properties of a dog licking your wound, you don't want a cat to lick your wound. It's an infection city. But they're showing compassion, and they're taking care of them. And all he wanted is just one little scrap. He's sitting in the filth of the city. The gate was also symbolic of justice. 
And in the gate is where you got justice. So the city gate is where you go to the judges to get justice for your crimes. Or if some, your landowner, usually these wealthy people are also landowners and a lot of people work their lands. If you were wronged by one of your other neighbors, you would go to the rich, wealthy man and his gate and you would get justice from him because you worked for him or you were somehow beholding to him through taxes or whatever. And so Lazarus is sitting at this man's gate and he can't even get justice. And what Jesus is painting a picture of is Israel as a whole. It's exactly what the prophets condemned Israel for. That you're not taking care of the poor. You're being unjust towards the poor. That you can't even bring yourself to helping the poor. In fact, you're finding ways to make money off of the poor. And Lazarus, or sorry, the wealthy man, is the epitome of who Israel was before the exile and who Israel is becoming again. Now the poor man died. He was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. And the ranch man also died and was buried. The rich man didn't even have the decency to give Lazarus a proper burial. Even the, the poor get buried. But Lazarus didn't, couldn't even give him a, a plot anywhere. And so, yet, here's where the great role reversal happens. The angels carry off Lazarus. Lazarus' name means God is my help. And so Lazarus is a man who is dependent upon God, even though the world has failed him. And God takes care of him by carrying him off by the angels. But all the rich man gets is a buried. And he does not take anything with them. We all know the joke. Well, not a joke, the proverb. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. And in hell, as he was torment. Now this word hell, don't think of like our American version of hell where you go for torment and that kind of stuff. This word is also Hades. And Hades is a very difficult concept to figure out in the Bible. This is the Greek equivalent of Sheol from the First Testament. And Sheol is the Hebrew word, the grave. And everybody went to the grave. David, Abraham, Haman, the guy who tried to kill all the Jews and Esther. It doesn't matter who you were, whether you're godly or not. Everybody went to Sheol. And everyone went to the grave. And the best that we can understand is it was a holding place for all people. And they went into some kind of a soul sleep. And they wait, stayed there awaiting the day that Christ would come and, and die on the cross and open up the gates to heaven. And so this is where everybody went. Sometimes it's described as a shadowy place where people are lost. Um, sometimes it's a place where they just sleep. We do not really know how to understand the afterlife and the First Testament. This word is then transliterated into the Greek as Hades or translated as Hades. And so Hades, and oftentimes in the Gospels and in the epistles, is used just like Sheol, just the place that everybody goes when they die. Good, bad, godly, not part of the covenant, not part of the covenant. Sometimes it's used as a place of torment. It's connected to Gehenna. Gehenna was this valley, and um, it was next to Israel, and they would sacrifice humans there. And there were so many human sacrifices by the Israelites during the time of kings that it became known as the Valley of Gehenna, the Valley of Torment, the, the Valley of Death or whatever. And so those, that concept begins to merge with this Hades idea over time. 
But when does that merge happen fully and completely? When is it somebody using the old way that's vague and the more specific way that's torment and stuff? We don't know exactly. But in this context, it seems to be a place where he's actually being tormented. Okay, so Christ seems to be using this new concept of Gehenna, of torment. But at the same time, we're going to be introduced to, he looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus as his side. Now, you might want to think he looked up and saw into heaven, but that's not what's happening. Christ doesn't explain this as, listen, it doesn't say that Lazarus was with God. That's what we'd expect post-Christ. That's what Paul says all the time. That's what Peter says, is when you were to die, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But it doesn't say that he went to be with God. It says he's with Abraham. And then later we're told that there's a great chasm between the two. They're able to see each other, and there's this chasm between them. That is not all how heaven is ever described. And so this seems to be a pre-Christ death and resurrection concept, where at this point Christ is starting to introduce the idea that, yes, everyone went to Sheol, but in Sheol there was still some kind of a separation between those who were godly and those who were not. And there was some kind of a torment. It says that he's hot and he's in fire. But remember, that could be more metaphorical. Okay, Um, Metaphorical, just fire is judgment and that there's torment. The emphasis is that there's torment. And we know that we're our own best torment as humans. We don't need God to create torment for us. We create our own torment. And so they're in this great reversal. He looked up and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus as his side. And so he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I am in anguish in this fire. Notice the way the rich man is talking to Abraham. He looks at Abraham, and he calls him Father Abraham. He gives him his due respect and title. But then he says, Abraham, you send Lazarus to me in order to provide me relief. Even in hell, he's acting like a pompous, entitled rich man. He commands Abraham, the father of all of the Israelites. Remember, the child is never greater than the father, according to the way they think. And then he doesn't have the, the, he doesn't have the decency to say, Lazarus. You expect him to say, oh my gosh, I was so wrong. Oh, God, I was so wrong. Please have mercy on me. Oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. No, he says, Lazarus is my servant. Abraham, tell him to come here and serve me too. That's the way he deals with him. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus likewise bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides, as a great chasm has been fixed between us, and so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He says, look, you're both getting what you deserve. You're both reaping what you invested in. The rich man had already made his choices. He had chosen to be self-entitled and self-serving and to hoard all of his resources for himself. Lazarus had very little. And he decided to invest in other people. And we know he chose to invest in other people because the entire context of Jesus' ministry are my true followers invest in other people and they go out and they serve. And therefore, as Lazarus is ending up next to 
Abraham's side, then he was someone who invested even with the very little that he had. He was still investing in people. They're getting exactly what they invested in. Kingdom economics. And the reason there's this great crossing. And he makes the point. This is an interesting point. No one can come from your side to us, and we can't go from you to them. And you're like, wait a minute. Why would anybody want to go over there? (laughs) If you're in Abraham's bosom, why would you ever want to go in here? And this is the word that's used here is Abraham's bosom. And remember, in the ancient world, to be tied into somebody's bosom is a a, a picture of intimacy, uh, of great connection, of friendship and, and, and companionship. But basically, the point that he's making is that there is no escape from hell. Even if we wanted to, it can't happen. And D.A. Carson makes this point. I think this is a brilliant point. You think, why would anybody want to cross from the good place into the bad place? Why would you want to leave that? And it's not that they would want to leave that. It's that people who have spent their entire life investing in other people and caring about their loved ones so much because they are truly marked by God and the Spirit is working in them, would want to leave their place to help and rescue and save their loved ones that are there. And what God is making very clear is that there's no going either way. Once you die, it is final. And the decisions that your loved ones have made and the decisions that you've made are final. And that's what you've invested in. That's the investment that you're going to get the return on no matter how much you want to help them. So you're saying he... The desire that we have to go rescue our loved ones from hell, that's nothing compared to the desire that God would have to want to rescue his children from hell. And getting God's desire, he does not want robots in heaven. He does not want people who have guns to their head forced to serve him in heaven and love him. And the time to convince your loved ones is now. And if they choose to reject him, they chose it. You cannot, nobody wants people to love you because you're forcing them to do it. And nor can you have a healthy relationship with people who are forced to love you. And so no matter how much you would want to rescue them, they don't want to be rescued. They want to be rescued from the anguish, but they don't want to be rescued from the kingdom that they have built. And this is the point that he's making. So the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers to warn them that they don't come to the, into this place in torment. He's still commanding Lazarus. And he's still commanding Abraham. And not only that, he's like, Well, if he can't come over here and serve me, he can at least go serve my family. You can't say that he can't go back into the real life, right? Resurrect him from the grave, Abraham, and send him to serve my family. He's got a whole lot of serving left in him, right? But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They must respond to them. So he says, no, 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 no. They already have everything. They have Moses and the prophets. Like, how much more convincing can Lazarus be than Moses and the prophets? No offense, Lazarus. I love you to death, but... How much more convincing can you be than Moses and the prophets? Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Now he's arguing with Abraham. He's arguing theology with Abraham. He said, No, no, you're wrong. Even though somehow Abraham got it right enough that he ended up in the good place. And the rich man got it so wrong that he ended up in the bad place. But Abraham, you're still wrong. And we know people like that, right? 
You're not living perfect, but you've made some pretty good, wise decisions in your life, and you're living pretty blessed. And this person has just ruined their life with all their bad choices all the time. And they're watching their world burn around them, and they're arguing with you. No, 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 no. That's not good parenting. Okay, I'm the one that has an intact family. I'm not perfect, but I didn't beat my kids and that kind of stuff. Oh, no, 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 that's not a good investment. I still have my job. You've gotten fired from everything. Like, we know people like that. You're arguing me. You're, you're there, and I'm here. And I don't mean that in an unkind, unloving, I did it better, and you're pathetic. But I'm not perfect, but I've obviously shown greater wisdom in certain areas than you have. Because we can see very obvious, this is a, this is a lack of wisdom, why you're here. But they're arguing with you why you're wrong. And you're like, this doesn't make sense. And this is exactly what the rich man does. You're wrong, Abraham. I'll tell you how to have a good afterlife. Whoa, wait, you're there and I'm here. He replied to them, If they do not respond to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Partly this is, miracles don't convince people. The Spirit and the Word of God does. The other part of this is they did have two resurrections with Elijah and Elisha raising those boys. And that's in the prophets. And, that's in, and that hasn't convinced them. And then there's a little foreshadowing of the vast majority will still reject me even when my son rises from the dead. The vast majority of you will still reject me. If Moses and the prophets is not enough, then nothing will convince you. Jesus ends at this point. But there are several points this parable is making. First, this parable shows that going to hell does not change people. We have bought, we talked about this a little bit last time we met. For us who are believers, it's unfathomable how anybody can stand in the full glory of God at their death and see him in all his entirety and all their arguments why God can't exist or why there's no accuracy for the Bible or, or the church was horrible, bad people who stabbed me in the back and how can I be a part of a bunch of hypocrites? All those arguments would just flood, flee from them as they're standing in the glory of an absolute, supreme, real, loving God. And you're like, how could anybody reject that? And the first point this parable is making is hell doesn't change people. Standing before God doesn't change people. The demons, Satan, have stood before God in all of his glory and still chose to go a contrary path. The rich man never humbled himself once. He never repented. He never said that he was wrong. He never asked for forgiveness. He never decided to treat Lazarus differently. He was still arrogant, self-absorbed, and entitled even in his judgment and suffering. Hell is made up of arrogant, self-absorbed people. And the point is, all of our theology about how, like, oh, second chances, and oh, maybe it's not too late, that, that's not going to change them. God makes it very clear that they have everything that they need to make their decision before they die. And if you believe that they still need second chances after death, then you're basically saying that God has not done enough in this life. And you think that somehow we're just going to magically change if we're given that one last shred of evidence. And this is the point that it's making. Hell is made up of people 
who are endless, wretched cycle of their own sin, their own dysfunctionality, their own arrogance, and their own condemnation. It is a place of pride, selfishness, and pursuit of power. And it's keeping score at other people's expenses. And this is why hell becomes hell. Because if you live in a world where it's full of people like that, well, we've seen what people like that do to each other on this earth. Now remove all the compassion of all the people that are not like that. And imagine what we would do to this world. Second, this parable warns against the dangers of pursuing money over Yahweh and ignoring his scriptures and his prophets. The rich man was not excluded from heaven because he was rich, but rather because he valued his wealth more than other things and became callous to the needs of others. The things that our culture teaches us to take pride in might actually be the things that blind us to our need for grace. That's a quote from D.A. Carson, and I think that's very powerful. The things that our world, my freedoms, my American dream, the modern-day version of it, my bigger house, my comfort, my entertainment, these are the things that could blind us from our own need for God's grace. And when we start thinking, mine, 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 my right, my right, my right, my need, I deserve this, I worked hard for it, then we become blind to the fact that these things are not wrong in themselves, but they make us callous to our real need for God and other people's needs. And this is how the rich man became the rich man. Because he became callous when he started thinking, me, 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 me. Third, the parable shows that Yahweh has not left humanity without a witness. He has for many thousands of years pursued humanity and given the witness of his love and our need. Every single story of God's judgment all through the Bible is always preceded by a witness. Even the, 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 the judgment of the flood. There are two, the, the three most harsh judgments we can ever think of in the Bible is the worldwide flood in Genesis 6. And yet God gave him 120 years to repent with the preaching of Noah. The other great judgment that we can think of is the extermination of the Canaanites. And yet God gave him 400 years to repent with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Melchizedek and other prophets. And then he sent two witnesses into the land in order to convince them, enough convincing that Rahab and her family were willing to convert. And three, the judgment of Israel going to exile. But we know the thousands of prophets that he sent them and the miracles. And the only other judgment we have beyond those three historical ones is the ultimate judgment of going to hell for the rejection of Christ. But to that, he has not only given us all that, but he's also given us the great witnesses of John the baptizer and Jesus Christ. And now the church. And so if this is not enough, then nothing is. And do not think God is unloving and callous that he doesn't give people chances because he does. Why would anything, anybody think that something more beyond death could be the last thing? Why would anybody think that God has not done enough and that he's some un, unjust and unloving and uncaring because he doesn't give people a second chance in hell? That is not a God who sends his son to die for us. And so the point is, hell is a final destination. There is no getting out of it no matter what you've done. And that God is giving you plenty of opportunities. And people go there because of the kind of people they are. This is a harsh reality. 
And what this should do is turn us away from an anger or a, 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 a lack of faith in God and an urgency to share with our loved ones. What's the point of the context? What kingdom are you investing in? Has the things of the world become so enticing and so important to you that they've calloused you to the things of God and the thing in serving in the kingdom of God? Or are you, do you know as attractive as they are and as much as we all mess up and we all are lured by that, that God is so important to you that you're nurturing that in your devotions and your prayer life and all that kind of stuff that the things of the world can't compete we will never be able to remove the attraction of the world. We will never be able to remove that temptation completely. We will never be able to just stand in the face of all possible temptations at its greatest strength and say, it does not affect me. But what we can do is fill ourselves so much with Christ that they don't become as attractive. Now, I don't know if you've done any like marriage counseling or that kind of stuff, but if you've ever read this, there's an old book called His Needs, Her Needs, okay? And one of the things that a lot of psychologists teach you is you invest. Every time you do something loving or servanted into your spouse or your family, you invest in them. You're investing them. And you're, you're building up this bank of investment of connection and love. And you, you invest in it and you build up that investment more and more and more and more and more and more. And then one day something is going to threaten that ability, right? And it could be that you just were, you're, you're, you're grumpy and you're in a bad mood and you took it out on your spouse in the wrong way and you're like deposit, you're withdrawal, withdrawal, withdrawal. Or it could be that you're, you're, you're just suffering and you're dying in the hospital and you can't really invest in your spouse that much because you're barely staying alive yourself. And them serving you day in and day and night is taking a lot out of them. And it's nothing you've done intentionally, but it's taking withdrawals from that investment. Their, their need for connection, their need for you to invest in them, or a road trip or something. <clears throat> and if you've never invested in your spouse, then they're always going to be bankrupt emotionally in their connection. And you can't expect them to always resist every temptation of every other guy or every other woman that comes in their life if they're constantly empty and you're not investing in them. And it's not selfish, I'm going to invest in them so they never betray me, but Part of it is just practical. Like, if you invest in your spouse, if you invest in your children, rather than your work or rather than your entertainment or rather than your hobbies, then they're more likely to be connected to you, which means when hard times come, there's a full checking account or investment there. And they can say, oh, this is just temporary. I know that dad is not always like this. I know my husband is not always like this. This is just inconvenient and temporary right now. And this is what Christ is saying. What are you going to invest in? What kingdom are you going to invest in? Because all of us have our sparkling lights. Some of us, it's the need to succeed at work. And it's very tempting to invest way more hours in work to get the job promotions and to be praised for being accomplished than it is to invest in our families and, and in the people in our neighborhood and people at church. For some of us, it's investing in the church, that we've made church our God. And, and we feel appreciated and we feel important and we feel significant because we're involved in all these ministries, but we're doing it out of duty and we're doing it for our own gain than we are for really truly serving other people. 
some of us are addicted to praise and, and connection. And we're really invested in people, not so we can help them and serve them, but because we really desperately need them to like us and serve us and return the favor so that we feel better about ourselves and we don't feel so miserable and depressed and low self-esteem. Some of it is money. Some of it is the job promotion. Some of it is the hobbies. We all have an addiction that we're attracted to, that we medicate ourselves with in order to feel significant or loved or safe. And the question is, do you get what that is in your life? And do you get how Christ is actually superior and greater to fulfill your needs and your desires than this thing will? And are you willing to crucify this and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him to pursue this? And we said that, yes, at one time in our lives. But the gospel is preached to the believer just as much as the unbeliever, Paul says. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of these things because, oh, the world is so powerful and attractive. And it doesn't take long. A couple Bible studies, a couple devotions, a couple prayer times that you miss because life was busy or you were tired before the overwhelmingness of the world starts becoming very attractive. And the more you invest in God, the less that will seem attractive. The more you invest in God, the world will begin to diminish. I think there's a hymn. You can never remove that temptation completely in you until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what you can do is invest in God and invest in the kingdom of God so that that attractiveness will become diminished. It will be less bright, less disco ball, less obsessive, and it will pale in comparison to how you're being fueled by your relationship with God. And the more you invest in that, the less likely you'll fall when you're tired and lonely in your life. Because all those moments come. All those moments come. 